This paid podcast is a partnership between Slate Studios and Century 21 Real Estate. All uses of trademarks or brands are not meant to convey sponsorship or affiliation of this podcast. From Century 21 Real Estate, this is The Relentless, the podcast that looks at sales differently. As entrepreneurs, we write our own playbooks. When we're thrown off course, when assumptions hold us back, we find a way to move fearlessly in a different direction. I'm Kristen Meinzer. I'm an author, entrepreneur, and podcast host. And in a world filled with noise, there's a superpower I've developed that's helped me more than anything else. Never letting fear get in the way. That means building up confidence, taking risks, and tackling the really hard problems. And that's what we're exploring this season. How can we move fearlessly in a world filled with potential obstacles? Get ready to meet the people who transform what scares them into something that inspires them. It's time to move fearlessly and stay relentless. Think back to a time in your life when you really struggled with a decision, a decision whether you should quit. Quitting a job, a business you were trying to start, or maybe you'd spent months trying to land a sale, but nothing was going your way. Pulling the plug, pivoting, quitting, whatever you want to call it, why is it so hard to back out when you're all in? That's what we're diving into today. We're looking at how quitting can be a surprisingly effective tool in an entrepreneur's toolbox. When we invest time, money, and effort in a project, unhooking can be so hard. And my guest today is one of the best guides out there to walk us through how to do it. I'm Annie Duke. I am a former professional poker player, cognitive scientist, and decision strategist. By the time she retired from professional poker 10 years ago, Annie Duke earned more than $4 million in tournament winnings. Since then, Duke has become a best-selling author. Her book, Thinking and Bets, was all about how to become a better decision maker, and her new book is called Quit, The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away. The subtitle is a little bit of my revenge on the Kenny Rogers song, because when I was a poker player, if I ever came on a show, the intro was always that Kenny Rogers song. But still, for Annie, the song lyric hit on something that really rang true. You know, he says no one to hold him, no one to fold him, no one to walk away, no one to run. And of those four things, three are like quit. So I think he gets that kind of right. She says quitting well is what separates elite poker players from the amateurs. How good they are at folding their hand when it's no longer appropriate to continue, even if they have a lot of money in the pot. And back in 2004 at the World Series of Poker, that's just what Annie did. I was playing in the Tournament of Champions, and I was in a hand against Greg Raymer. I re-raised with two tens, which is a very strong hand in the game. I went around to Greg Raymer. He put in all his chips. And so it came back around to me, and this was a really difficult situation for me because there was quite a bit of money in the pot. I had 150000 in front of me, and I was there were about 450000 worth of chips in the pot. And so this is a situation where I have to get to quite a bit of certainty that Greg is not holding a hand like ace-king or ace-queen. He has to be holding aces or kings. And so I've got to narrow him down to those two hands. And I thought about it quite a bit. That's the only possibility for me to hold two tens here. And kind of thought about what I saw from Greg in terms of the way he was acting. 
and I folded the hand. And Phil Helmuth, who was at the table, immediately started calling me an idiot <laughs> and saying, how could you possibly have folded that hand? That was completely <laughs> ridiculous. And But I was pretty, like, I, I, was, I felt pretty good about the fold. I really felt like I had a good read on Greg. But that hand occurred right before dinner, and I had to go <laughs> marinate in that for a full hour uh, during dinner, wow. which was really horrible. Anyway, I came back, started playing, got in another tangle with Greg Raymer, which I beat him in that hand and got a bunch of chips and then got in a third tangle with Greg Raymer where I actually knocked him out of the tournament. So I now knock Greg Raymer out. He comes around the table as he's about to leave and he whispers in my ear, that was a great fold. I had kings. <gasps> oh. So even before I you know, was thinking about writing this book, people would often ask me what was the best decision you ever made when you were playing. And that was a really difficult decision for me to make because there were a lot of sort of mathematical indicators saying, oh, you know, probably if in doubt, call here. But I really do believe that that's literally the best decision I ever made when I was playing poker during my whole career was just to fold that hand and walk away from it. That simplicity is genius. Fold that hand and walk away you know, a lot of our listeners out there are entrepreneurial. They are folks who go all in and commit to a project, and they typically do not attribute success to quitting, yet you do. How has quitting fit into your life? You know, I think if you were to look at my life, I think that people would probably describe me as pretty gritty. But I really actually pride myself on being very quitty. <laughs> and, I, and, and I think it's about the balance between the two. What I'm gritty about is that I have overall things that I'd like to achieve. But I'm very quitty about the way that I achieve them. And I think that this is actually a really important lesson. And one that I, I should say, uh, Angela Duckworth, who wrote the amazing book, Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance, she herself says, like, you should do a lot of exploration to sort of find out what you're passionate about. And then even if it's hard, you should stick to it. She says, like, you have to stick to the right things. And I think I've done a pretty good job of that. So when people think about my career, it's like I was a graduate student, then quit that to become a poker player. Then about eight years into playing poker, I started to speak on the intersection of poker and cognitive science and thinking about decision-making under, under uncertainty, which then blossomed also into business consulting, which has been very fulfilling. I then quit poker in 2012, just retired from the game and actually haven't played since because I really wanted to start, you know, getting much more deeply into the consulting space, which quitting was going to allow me to have more time to do. Um, and then I also wanted to write this book, Thinking in Bats, that I had been thinking about for quite a while and just needed to make the space in my life. So it looks like, you know, quit, 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 right? But if you look through all the things that I've done, they all are explorations of the exact same topic, which is decision-making under uncertainty and how do you actually tackle that problem? And that was true when I was 21 and I entered graduate school and it's true today. And so I've been very gritty about that thing that I think about, just very quitty about how I actually decide to explore it at any given time. I have to say I love all of this because it's so counter to what a lot of us were taught by our parents, by culture at large, that quitters never win, winners never quit, got to stick it out, it's a sign of weakness if you quit. Why do you think there is so much negativity around quitting? I think that generally one of the reasons we think about it so negatively is we think that quitting is going to stop our progress or it's going to slow us down. It's going to make it so that we're slower to reach our goals. And the thing is that that's only sometimes true. 
when you quit well, it actually speeds you up. It gets you to where you want to go faster. And the reason for that is that oftentimes we get on paths that are no longer worthwhile. Or going into the decision, you may make your sort of best forecast that the path that you're taking, the thing that you're starting is going to be worth your while. But then it could just turn out that you really hate playing the trombone. When it turns out that you don't have talent for it and you're miserable, if you stick to it, it's actually going to slow you down towards your goal of like doing something really fulfilling and creative and artistic. But if you actually quit, you can now move on to something and start something new that is going to get you to where you want to go faster. So I think that we have to start there, that it doesn't slow you down. It actually speeds you up when you do it right. So the value of grit is that it gets you to stick to things that are really worthwhile, right? So we don't want the fact that it's hard to stop us from doing it if it's worthwhile. The problem is that grit also gets you to stick to things that aren't worthwhile. And so that's the key is when the path you're on is no longer worth it, then that's the moment that you would want to switch. So theoretically, if we could sort of see into that calculation, that would be the perfect time to quit. That That is fascinating because... Uh, at least for me, sometimes I'm like, oh, this just isn't going my way. I want to quit. Or other times I have stayed in things way too long because I don't want to be a quitter. Things that, you know, logically I'm like, oh, I, I, I know this isn't making me better. It's not making my life better, but I don't want to disappoint anybody. I don't want to give the wrong impression. What is this going to do to my professional or academic record if I quit this thing? And what you're saying is, you know, it's it's about what's going to help you get to where you want to be. In a lot of ways, you're saying, don't worry about those expectations out there. So, yeah, I mean, I think, so I think you're bringing up something really important, which is that there are a lot of forces that make it really hard for us to quit. Uh, there's decades and decades and decades of science that tells us that actually, when it comes to quitting, we tend to do it too late. Like we started a company and we're out of money and we can't raise it anymore. Our job has become so intolerable that we find ourselves calling in sick all the time. Because if we wait until that moment when it's really not a decision anymore because it's so clear that we don't have another choice, if we wait till that moment to quit, who's going to judge us for it? Mm. Right? Because they're going to say like, well, you didn't have a choice. Right? And, and the thing yeah. is a lot of that judgment comes from us. Like, well, what could I do? I tried everything. I tried as hard as I could to turn it around and I couldn't do it. But here's the interesting thing is that the only way for you to know for sure how the thing you started turns out is to stick to it. There's this really cool work from Stephen Levitt that I think really underlines sort of what this does to us, that in the end, what that creates is that usually, not always, but usually when we quit, uh, we're quitting too late. And if you quit on time, it's going to feel way too early. So Stephen Levitt, you know, Freakonomics fame. Freakonomics, yeah. yeah. He put up a website and it was it's such a fun idea. And he basically called to his, you know, he has podcast listeners and people who read his stuff. And he called to his audience and he said, hey, if you're struggling with a big decision about whether to stick or quit, come to my website. And you can input the decision, like, should I quit my job or should I stay? And once you've described what the decision is, we're going to assign one side to heads and one side to tails. So like stay in your job would get heads and quit your job would be tails. And then the website would flip a virtual coin. 
and whatever it landed, you were supposed to do it. Now, what you may be thinking, Kristen, is like, who on earth would do that? You know, flip a coin for a big life decision. But actually, 20,000 people did this. If you're willing to go flip a coin to try to decide this, you must think it's a really close call. You're agreeing that if the coin lands heads, you're going to stay in your job. And if the coin lands tails, you're going to quit. So you're agreeing to adhere to the coin either way. So what that feels to me like is that you don't have a clear winner, right? Because if the clear Mm. winner were stay, you wouldn't go flip a coin. And if the clear winner were quit, you also wouldn't go flip a coin. You must feel in your heart that this is, you can't literally can't decide between the two options. It's too hard for you to figure it out because they're so close. So what that would mean is that if it really is as close as the coin flippers felt it was, then what you should find is that after they do what the coin tells them and you ask them a few months later, are you happier than you were before? that the quitters should be about as happy as the stickers because it's a 50-50 choice. I mean, what they're kind of saying Mm -hmm. is, I feel like I'll be happy either way, so let's flip a coin. And so you would expect to have equal happiness, right? And that's not what Stephen Levitt found. What he actually found is that the quitters were happier both two and six months later on average than the people who stuck. Mm. Mm. So Interesting. Right? So what's going on there is that, and this has to do with like, we're normally getting to these decisions too late, is that by the time that you feel like it's 50-50, it's actually not 50-50 at all. By the Ah. time you think it's 50-50 between quitting and sticking, quitting is actually the clear winner already by that point, which means that we're just sort of sticking around in things too long, despite what the world is telling us, despite the world is saying like, hey, you might want to listen to me. I think you're going to be happier if you walk away. We just, we don't pay attention to that very well. And we, we try to get to a place of way too much certainty that quitting is the right choice before we're willing actually to execute on it. Now, Annie, a lot of our listeners are in the real estate space, mm-hmm. which is an industry that requires its agents and brokers to weather shifts in forces that are way beyond their control, like the market. Could you talk about goals and why they need a quote-unquote unless, as well as progress markers? Can you explain what that means? You know, I think that goals generally people think about pretty universally as good things, right? Like uh, goals are motivating. If you have very clearly set goals, you know, in the world of KPIs and OKRs, oh yeah, right? That those types of goals are going to get you to where you want to go faster. They're going to get you a, a direction. You're going to head toward it and you're going to be gritty and execute, And the research actually does really bear that out. It's true. I I would never say to people that you shouldn't set goals. Uh, The problem is, though, that goals also have a downside, like a lot of things. There's three main problems with goals. The first is that goals are graded pass-fail. What does Mm -hmm. that mean, right? Like if I climb Everest and I get within 300 feet of the summit and I don't get to the summit, I failed, which is weird. (laughs) If I run a marathon and I finish eight miles of a marathon or 16 miles of a marathon, I failed because I didn't finish all 26. And where we can really feel this sort of pass-fail nature of goals, I think is in this intuition. And I can ask you this, Kristen. Um, Let's imagine that you never decided to run a marathon. Oh, that is true. I'm never going to do that. Good. So you've (laughs) never decided to run a marathon. Okay, so you you just never do it, right? 
I'm just never going to do it. Right. Yeah. So you can think about how does that make you feel to sort of think about I'm never going to run a marathon. But now imagine this. Imagine that you did decide to run a marathon and you you started the marathon and you ran 16 miles of it. And then something happened. You got hurt and you had to stop running. Which would feel worse? Oh, gosh, the latter. You know what feels better? Being me where I say I'm never going to run a marathon. That's right. <laughs> Think about how yeah. weird that is, right? It's like the couch potato gets more grace than the person who actually trains yes. for the marathon and then runs 16 miles. Yeah, it's not fair. The version of Kristen that runs 16 miles, so much more admirable than the version of Kristen who's like, I am never going to run. That's right. <laughs> right? So so once you decide that you're going to start something, there's now a finish line. It's a goal. And we don't judge ourselves by sort of the progress from the starting point. We judge ourselves by how short we are of the finish line. If you run... miles in the context of a half marathon, clearly you have succeeded. But if it's in the context of a marathon, now you have failed. And if you run Mm. 26.2 miles in the context of an ultra marathon, you have also failed. Right? So so we have to realize that we set these goals. The goals are somewhat arbitrary. They're sort of a guess at what we'd like to accomplish. But then once we set it, it's like everything is pass-fail in comparison to that. And so you can imagine how that gets you to continue going because you know, like, oh, if I don't finish, then that will mean I have failed. And I just want people listening to go Google, like, person finished marathon with a broken leg. And you will be amazed at what that Google search brings up. Because people do this all the time. There was a woman, Siobhan O'Keefe, in the um, uh, 2019 London Marathon who who literally snapped her fibula on mile eight. Oh, my God. God. And she finished so, like the 18 race. more miles she went on that. Yes. With medics, of course, telling her you need to stop. Now think about how bad Ugh. this is, right? Because she's sacrificing possibly the ability for her to ever run a race again. Because you know that's going to do a lot more damage to the injury, right? I mean, not only is it like pain and whatever, but I bet what's happening to you, you know, when we think about sort of the courage of quitting, is that there's something in you that admires her for that. Oh, sadly. But no, I don't want to, though. But you kind of do. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's messed up, but yeah. It's like, why do you wish you had that kind of grit? Like, she loves running. She may never run again. And the thing is, she wasn't alone. There were four people who did that in just that marathon. Oh, my God. Right? I mean, so this is a very common thing. So why does it happen? It's because we have a goal set that's a finish line. And so that's that pass-fail nature that then combines with this problem which is that goals become fixed objects. So when we decide, okay, I'm going to set a goal, it's some sort of calculation for a cost-benefit analysis, right? The problem is that we don't redo that cost-benefit analysis because the goal becomes a fixed object in a changing world. And not just a changing world, but we change ourselves. Our values might change. So that's why I say we need to have some good unlesses. And those unlesses are kind of saying, this seems like this is my best guess at what I think the goal should be, right? My best guess as I start this race is I want to run a marathon. My best guess is that I want to summit Everett. My best guess is that of the jobs that I have available to me, this is the one that I want to take. And this is the particular function that I want to be performing. My best guess Mm -hmm. is this is the best person for me to be in a relationship right now. And, you know, by guess, I don't mean random. I mean your best educated guess, given sort of what you know and sort of what you're predicting about what the future might look like. But then afterwards, you know, sometimes the earnings reports come in and they aren't exactly in line with what your forecast was, (laughs) right? 
And what we need to do is anticipate what are the things that might occur that would tell me that this is no longer the appropriate goal for me to follow. And we need to attach those unlesses at the time that we set the goal. Because we can't rely on ourselves to pay attention to those unlesses when they actually happen. Because when you're actually in it, it's very hard to walk away because we're so afraid of failing. But if you build it into your plan in advance, that actually really can help you to actually execute on it. Because when you set the goal, it's no longer so inflexible because you're adding the flexibility in at the time that you start. I think you're spot on there with this fixed goal finish line idea. That's something I really think hits home with real estate agents and brokers especially. So much of their dedication is working toward that fixed goal of a sale. When you're actually in the midst of it, if you don't have those unlesses, the instinct for a lot of us is just to soldier through. Right, because we think we're, I mean, we're going to admire ourselves for it and we we think that other people are going to admire us for it. I actually did um, a version of this with a group of sellers which I think is a good example of how you put unlesses on something. And this was through something that I use, which are, which I call kill criteria. So, you know, sellers, as you know, by nature are incredibly gritty. They live to close the deal, right? Like mm-hmm. uh, that's their deal. But the thing is that sellers, like anything else, have limited resources, right? Like people who are selling anything, real estate agents, yeah. you want to pursue the deals that are going to be worthwhile and you don't want to be pursuing the deals that aren't worthwhile, right? And that's true of if you have clients who have been looky-loos for like two years, or is that the right place for you to be spending your time, right? Mm -hmm. Like, should you be doing that or should you be trying to use that time to source new clients as an example? So this was a group of sellers who, who were selling software. And basically what I said is, imagine that you got a lead through an RFP or an RFI. And now it's six months later after pursuing the deal and you've lost the deal. Looking back, you realize there were early signals that you weren't gonna win. What were they? And so the sellers generated this this big list, but I'll, I'll, like, I'll give you an example of one of them that, that we heard over and over again, which was in the first meeting, they only asked about price. Didn't care about the product, just wanted to know our pricing. Now we can all see from the outside looking in that that's a really bad signal because it means you're probably being used as a stalking horse, right? Like they're trying to beat somebody else down at price on the price, maybe in fact, someone they already have a contract with. So they all sort of recognized that. But what was interesting was in the face of that actually occurring in a meeting, they would still pursue and pursue a second meeting and a third meeting. But in the context of not actually facing that decision down, where I was asking them in the abstract, they could all recognize that this was a really bad signal. So there were a variety of other things, like we couldn't get a decision maker in the room or the RFP was written with a competitor in mind, so on and so forth. And so we made a list of these things and that generated those unlesses. We want you to pursue that deal as hard as you can, unless, unless you see these mm-hmm. signals. And if you see these signals, uh, you need to either you know kill it right away if it's a strong enough signal, or you actually have to talk to your sales leader and walk through whether it's still worthwhile pursuing. And what was really good about that, I think, when we think about how much courage it takes to actually walk away from something, that it gives the sellers advanced warning that they're going to get rewarded for walking away. Because what's now going to happen is that if your sales leader is talking to you and says, what's going on with this lead? You're on the fourth meeting and nothing's happening. And you say, well, they just keep asking me about price. They're going to say to you, well, we talked about this. Why are you still pursuing the deal. So a way to win now is to actually follow that those unlesses, those kill criteria, and you can win by by winning the deal or you can win by actually exiting now. 
And that allows the sellers to be spending their time on the deals that are the most worthwhile. In the case of real estate, brokers are often in a mentorship relationship with their agents. What's the best sort of wisdom they could share with their agents around the benefits of quitting? You know, I mean, I think I think the wisdom is you have to do sort of two things in order to get good at quitting. One is you have to be thinking in advance. What are the signals that tell me that this isn't worth my while or that the thing that I'm doing isn't working or that I, I need to change course? And the reason that it's important to think about in advance is exactly as you said, when you're actually in the middle of it, mm-hmm. that's when we're always going to be at our, our worst in terms of trying to figure out what is the right path for us to be on. You know, that. The analogy that I like to give is if you've determined to eat healthy, that's all fine and good until a cupcake is sitting in front of you. <laughs> um, and so what you want to do is try to make as few decisions as possible when the cupcake is actually right there um, and try to sort of think in advance. But the other thing that you can do, which I think is incredibly important for people to really start to develop for themselves, is to get yourself a quitting coach. You know, like, I mean, Mm. part of being a good mentor or finding a good mentor should be someone who can help you when the thing you're doing isn't worthwhile and you ought to switch because they're going to be better at seeing it than you can. And I'm sure, Kristen, that that you've been in the situation where you can see really clearly that someone should stop working with a particular client or, yeah, yeah, I mean, where you're just going, this is such a waste of your time. They're just looky-loos. Like, what are you (laughs) doing? Right. And they're like, no, I know I can turn it around. I know I can make it work. Right. And you can see it so incredibly clearly. What that tells us is that we can see things better from the outside than from the inside. It also tells us that people are very reluctant to tell us these things. Do you really want to tell someone that they're failing? That's really hard. Ron Conway, who is a founder of SV Angel, said this. And I think it's so important is that my approach to life is life's too short for me to be spending time on things that aren't worthwhile. And if other people see, that I'm spending my time on something that isn't worthwhile, I want them to tell me. But that Mm. means I must give them permission to tell me. Yes. Yes. I love that advice. I am going to tell everybody, please be honest with me. I think one (laughs) one thing that I want to add into that is when you're on the side of being the mentor or the quitting coach, to understand that, that a lot of times when you can see something, and you you speak up about it. So you you say to people, you know, I, I really don't, these clients are just they're they're never going to buy a house. Like you just stop working with them. And <laughs> the the person's natural response to you is always going to be like, no, I can I know I can turn it around. I just want to give people the advice that the best thing to do in that situation is to agree with them. Yes, absolutely, mm-hmm. you're fantastic at your job. I'm absolutely sure you can turn it around and find them the perfect house, and and you're going to close. But then to follow up with this question. So how long are you willing to tolerate this situation? I agree. You can turn it around, right? How, how long? How long before you see that things are changing? And then figure out however long that is and then set some kill criteria with them, right? Like what would you, all right, so you're saying that you can tolerate this in the next three months. Great. Like let's figure out like what are the things that you're going to see from these clients that are going to tell you that something has changed such that, you know, things are actually going to end up working out and and they can tell you whatever those things are. And then you can say, great, so let's revisit this because now we've agreed what you have to see and that you can only tolerate this for three months. So I'm going to come back and talk to you when it's close to three months and we're going to check in on these things we've talked about and see how it's going. Now, one of the things that you might think to yourself is, but I can see that they should quit now. Aren't Aren't I getting them to go three months longer than that? 
Yes, but otherwise they're going to go a year. So yes. uh, as far as I can tell you, just save them nine months. And if life's too short, <laughs> then that's that's a pretty good savings. And I think that we have to be tolerant of that, right? That sometimes when we're coaching people, they're still going to quit later than we really think they should, as we can see it from the outside. But if we coach them well, they'll get to it faster than they would on their own. This is such great advice. You, you've shared so much fantastic wisdom with us today, Annie. I am so grateful for your time today. Thank you so much for joining us on The Relentless. Well, thank you so much for having me. This is such a fun conversation. It's time to meet Esther Mariah Tejeda. Back in the early 2000s, she quit a well-paying job as a Wall Street ratings analyst. Quitting smartly or pivoting is actually the most empowering thing that you can do if you're wanting to be in control of your narrative and in control of your story and in control of the life that you are building for yourself. And for Esther Mariah, the latest chapter in her story is her new role as Chief Marketing Officer for Anywhere Real Estate. Anywhere is the parent company of Century 21 Real Estate and several other real estate brands, including Sotheby's International, Coldwell Banker, and Corcoran. Over the last two decades, she's held executive roles in marketing and communications at several media and entertainment companies, including Univision, Sound Exchange, and Odyssey, which you may also know as CBS Radio and Entercom. Esther Mariah Tejeda, welcome to The Relentless. Hello, I'm thrilled to be here and thank you for having me. First off, congratulations on this new role. In so many of your prior roles, you were a change maker, transforming these companies, implementing fresh ideas around brand strategy, technology, apps, events, and public relations. How does all that past transformation experience connect to what you're doing today at Anywhere? I've been in the business of marketing for over two decades, and I have really done a little bit of all of it. And what I realized somewhere along that path is what I really loved to do was transformation, taking something that either is really broken and needs to be redone to meet you know, the current state of the market, or building something that's never before been built. That is the thing that makes my heart sing. And so when I got to Univision, I really started to shape my career to really just deal with transformations. Went on to do that several more times. I went to Entercom, who was about to acquire CBS Radio and launch the newly merged enterprise. And I built the marketing communications function there from scratch as well. And then went to Sound Exchange and did the same thing there. And so now... I am here at Anywhere thinking about how to transform the business of real estate and its connection or its connectivity to the consumers who are looking to buy or sell a home and participate in this very rewarding process of home ownership. And so it is a really exciting time to be at the organization and a really exciting time to be at the industry. And it is right in line with the thing that I love to do, right? Build and architect and reimagine and reestablish and change things. I have to say real estate is quite different from your past experience. Where did that interest in real estate come from? Have you always been interested in real estate? So it's a very funny story. It's sort of fortuitous in a way, but my mother growing up 
um, has been a real estate agent for the better part of 30 years. And, you know, in true Latin American Caribbean fashion, if you are a child in, in a home or there's a business, you are also part of that business. <laughs> so, so, um, I have, you know, as part of my upbringing, I was very much a witness to the re- residential real estate market, buying and selling and helping my mom to host her open houses and um, watching her, how she engages with clients and customers, how she guided them and advised them. And in many ways became their trusted partner in what was sort of generally a very overwhelming and sometimes scary process, many times for first-time home buyers. And so it's my first time officially being in the real estate industry, but it's certainly not my first experience with it. I literally have it in my blood. It's like in my DNA at this point. Wow. I love the family legacy there and a serious family legacy, three decades for your mom. Wow. And you helping out, little little Esther Mariah helping out like... Here, mom, let me put the sign in the yard for the open house. (laughs) Absolutely. And you know what was actually the most rewarding part of all of that was really two things. Watching my mother transition her career from being, you know, in a very corporate, you know, executive position to having really full control of her life, right? And being her own boss and her own schedule and and all of those things and how freeing that could be for many people who want to enter the workforce and have other constraints in their life, like children and families and other obligations. So that was one thing. But the other part about it that was always very fascinating and inspiring to me was that through real estate, my mother was able to really affect change in the community. And so one of the things that she did that I credit her for all of the time is bring diversity to this town that we were living in, in Bergen County, New Jersey at the time. You know, we were originally New Yorkers, born and raised, you know, in Manhattan and in in an immigrant community, right, from the Caribbean and Latin America. And my mom, as a real estate agent on the other side of the river, right, in the suburbs in Jersey, was able to bring people over who had dreams and hopes and aspirations of being homeowners and putting their children in good school districts and raising their families. And they didn't really know how to approach it, right? They didn't know anybody. They didn't trust anybody. They didn't understand the process. So my mother became that person and was able to make this dream a possibility for so many people who would have maybe not been able to do it if they didn't have someone that spoke their language, understood their culture, that they could trust, that they could see themselves in. And so I always thought that was the most inspirational part of what she was doing. It was making these dreams possible for families. I love that. It, it's That is beautiful. What are some ways that you personally would like to see diversity and cultural representation transform anywhere and its brands? Well, what excites me about my role and about where anywhere is in its journey forward, and also, frankly, where the industry is, is that the expectations of people in the market are very different, right? Buying a home, I think, by and large, is the biggest financial decision that most people will make in their lifetime. And it is also historically a very confusing, 
very scary, very overwhelming experience for most people who engage in the process of transacting for for a home, whether you're buying or whether you're selling. And especially if it's the first time that you do it, you know, just think about you have to make a decision on an agent. You have to then make a decision on a house. You have to find a mortgage. You have to get a title company. You have to get an inspection. I mean, you don't even know where to begin, right? The list is so long and it's so convoluted and complex. And and most people don't even know what that list is when they start out. Exactly, exactly. And it's just, it becomes this very daunting thing that I think actually probably gatekeeps a lot of people out of being homeowners, which is very sad and unfortunate. And it doesn't have to be that way. What we're trying to do is make that process of home ownership much more simple, much more transparent, much more approachable. And I like to say personally, it's like democratizing the home buying market, right? Make it easy for everyone, make it accessible for everyone, make it such that you don't need to have all of this background knowledge to be able to approach, you know, the idea of owning your own home, that it's something that, you know, you can do very, very easily and very simply. And we can do that through technology. We can do that through education. And we can do that by leaning into, certainly at Anywhere, our hundreds of thousands of absolutely amazing agents and brokers that are in the communities every single day, working with their neighbors, working with their peers, working with their friends, working with their families and getting people into homes. And so I am excited about what I'm able to contribute to that transformation of of what that process can look like and what Anywhere is involved in and endeavoring to do to make this whole thing just work better for people. Now, all this season, we're exploring different aspects of what it means to move fearlessly. Can you describe a moment in your career when you were scared, but you did not run away from the problem? Instead, you moved through it. The idea of doing things while you're scared is 100% part of my everyday life, right? Do it scared is better than not doing it at all. And it's the name of the game, really, especially in the business of transformation. You're building something or doing something that has never before been done. You try to be as rooted as possible in evidence, but it's never 100%. Like, gold star, it's definitely going to work. And so I lean into that. I lean into that sense of you know, maybe this will work, maybe this won't, but we have to try and we have to stay connected to the conviction that we have this hypothesis, we believe it's going to work, and we're going to give it our all. And you know what? Sometimes it doesn't work. And if it doesn't work, so what? Like, pick yourself up, redirect, and try it again in a different way. It's not the end of the world to fail, Failing is part of learning. And if you are never failing and if you're never taking risks and if you're never doing something wrong in order to learn how to do it right, then you're absolutely not growing and you're absolutely not learning. And so I keep that in the back of my head every day, all of the time. And if I didn't do that, I wouldn't have grown as a leader. I wouldn't have grown as a thinker. I wouldn't have grown as a marketer. And frankly, I wouldn't have grown as a human being because so much of our development is based on taking those risks and then seeing what happens. So I encourage people all of the time to to lean into the fear because it's not going to kill you, 
right? At, at worst, it might make you stress. You might lose a couple <laughs> nights of sleep here and there. You know, you might need a glass of wine at the end of the day, but it's not <laughs> going to kill you. And most likely it'll make you better. And I always say that, especially when I'm mentoring young people that are coming into the workforce, if it's too easy, it's not big enough. Dream bigger. Esther Mariah Tejeda, this has just been such a delight. Thank you for joining us today on The Relentless. Thank you for having me. It's been a wonderful chat and more power to the folks out there trying to be fearless, live relentlessly, do great things. The Relentless is produced by Slate Studios in partnership with Century 21 Real Estate. You can find out more about the guests you heard in today's show and discover more great material from our Century 21 partners at slate.com slash c21relentless. I'm Kristen Meinzer. Thanks so much for listening. All rights reserved. Nothing herein is intended to create an employment relationship. Century 21 Real Estate, LLC, fully supports the principles of the Fair Housing Act and the Equal Opportunity Act. Each office is independently owned and operated. This material may contain suggestions and best practices that you may use at your discretion.